What's the moral argument against human extinction? Why is it important that we exist and survive rather than be destroyed by ourselves or our environment? And if we do survive and even find a way to thrive into the far future, what will humanity actually look like? Will the integration of our bodies into technology go so deep that our descendants will be as different from us as Homo sapiens are from their evolutionary ancestors? These are the kinds of questions that guide transhumanism. It's a philosophical and scientific movement that studies the use of current and emergent technologies, things like genetic engineering, cryonics, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, to augment the human capabilities and improve the human condition. So any discussion about transhumanism would be totally incomplete without the input from our next guest, Anders Sandberg. Anders has spent his life studying the existential risk of humanity, how we can better safeguard ourselves against extinction, and how the evolution of our species can actually leap forward by leveraging new technology. Anders believes that the survival of our species depends on the intersection of technology, biology, transhumanism, and the collective will to survive. And to sustainably expand from our little corner of the galaxy and into the vast universe in which we exist. My name is Robert Roach, and this is the Type 1 Planet podcast. You can watch or listen to this episode. Please subscribe, share it with someone who might become inspired, and visit us at type1planet.net. Hello and welcome to the Type 1 Planet podcast. I'm Robert Roach, and I am joined today by our guest, Anders Sandberg. Anders, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. <laughs> uh, so Anders, the mission of Type 1 Planet is to reimagine and potentially spark a redesign of our civilization so that we can enter into a long-term sustainable state that's in equilibrium with ourselves and with our planetary environment. And there's so many topics that, I, that you're an expert on that I wanna dive into. So we're gonna need to keep a limited scope, at least for this episode. Um, so I'd like to focus on three key areas, human existential risk, what the evolution of human civilization could look like to mitigate that risk, and then also how human beings themselves could potentially evolve in that far future and what that could look like. So I want to start with a, a hard question. Uh, I'd like you to lay out a moral argument against human extinction. Why should we act to protect future generations and human, humanity's legacy? Uh, my my first reaction is, of course, just to say, but life is worth living. To most people, the, it's a good thing that we're alive, and it's a bad thing if we stop being alive. So you could say, at the very least, we have 8 billion people's lives right now that we want to preserve. But that's, of course, not all we care about. We do care about our children's options. We, in fact, uh, care quite deeply that they are probably going to continue our families and our projects. Many of the things we do as a society don't make much sense unless you assume that there are future generations that uh, will gain from that. But you can also make a different kind of argument and say, yes, it's all good and fine that uh, there are um, uh, these things. But uh, there is also a justice argument. And after all, we shouldn't discriminate against people who are far away from us in space. So why should we discriminate against people who are far away from us in time? Those future generations, are, their lives are worth as much as ours. It's just that we don't know who they are 
But then again, I don't know many of the people who live in the remote corners of the earth and their lives are still worth uh, preserving. You can come up with actually a quite long list of very different arguments for why we shouldn't go extinct. Some of them, like these ones, are very tied to humans. Some of them might be that we actually also have a role to safeguarding the biosphere. Right now, we're doing a rather crappy job at that. But we could become the best defenders of the biosphere. The dinosaurs didn't have an asteroid redirection program. Uh, the, the Azola algae that uh, took over the Arctic Ocean 50 million years ago and crashed the, the carbon dioxide levels of the atmosphere, uh, they didn't know what they're doing. We actually are measuring our carbon impact and realizing we need to change what we're doing. And you could also argue that we want to have options open. Maybe future philosophers will figure out that actually life actually isn't worth living and we should just lie down and die. That's actually the right choice. But we better scrutinize that thinking a lot. We're not in agreement about it. In fact, most people would violently disagree with those gloomy philosophers and say that they're probably wrong about something. So I think uh, one can get a whole bundle of arguments. And even though you might not always be convinced by one uh, of these arguments, it seems like the general forces, yeah, going extinct would be really bad, not just for us, but for future generations, maybe for the biosphere, and even perhaps in some sense for the universe. If we are the only conscious beings in the universe who can marvel at it, maybe we're actually contributing something rather important to it. It's uh, it's something I think about frequently that once we gained the ability to terraform the earth and to terraform the, the biosphere, we became the stewards of that biosphere. And, and uh, one that is arguably the rarest uh, a phenomenon we've ever seen in the observable universe, <laughs> you know. So yeah, yeah, I, uh, it's really interesting. So oh, uh, and life, it's pre it's precious. It looks like uh, right now the scientific uncertainty about the probability of life emerging on our planet is one of the most uncertain uh, factors in all of science. Uh, in one paper, I argued that it's at least a hundred orders of magnitude uncertainty of the probability that you get life on a planet. It might be that it's super common and that it's a dime a dozen. But it might also be that, yep, life only emerged once in the visible universe, and this is kind of it. And if this uh, little flicker of glorious light goes out, then that's it. So we might have a tremendous responsibility, a frightening responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and, and uh, for example, we could have single cellular life all over the galaxy, but... Uh, very few examples of multicellular life, which is a totally different ballgame, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually think that is the most likely thing. I'm starting to come around to the view that panspermia, that spores of bacteria and other organisms do tend to spread because of meteorite impact. And I wouldn't be surprised to find that simple life is uh, spread around at least the solar system and perhaps in other ones. But getting the right genetic coding system that is really good at evolving something complex in a few billion years, rather than taking trillions of years, might turn out to be much harder than getting life. So again, there is an interesting question here whether we are the only complex life in the universe. Now, if it turns out that actually life is common and complex life is common and the intelligence also emerges, then it might, of course, be bad news for us because an empty sky with no billboards from aliens is kind of a hint that uh, maybe there is a great filter in the future. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
or it's a bad idea to broadcast yourself to the rest of the universe, which is another. Yes, uh, that the, is the a dark, real dark possibility. Yeah. However, it's very hard to coordinate against this. Uh, there are many, many people on Earth that think it's a stupid idea to send messages towards aliens, but there has been opera invitations sent towards the star Arcturus for an opera made in Klingon a few years back. Some advertisement companies have actually sent ads literally to the stars. So if we're trying to hide, we're not doing a very good coordinated job at that. Maybe advanced civilizations, the ones that survive are the ones that uh, learn how to hide well. But a civilization is a big thing. It has many parts and many different wills. So it might be tricky for a civilization to hide. Similarly, explanations mm. of the empty sky in the form of all advanced civilizations decide not to do certain things or sit at home and play computer games. They only work if everybody in that civilization does it. And it's the strongest sociological claim ever. If some sociologists claim that all humans in all cultures at all times will do this, of course, a lot of people would just say, watch this. We're totally not going to do it just to mess with the sociologists. Right, right. Well, let's let's pretend that uh, humanity does agree on something and that we don't want to go extinct and we, we want to protect the biosphere. Um, you created a three-stage fl- uh, framework for classifying existential risk. Can you talk about this framework a little bit and what are the real risks that humanity and the biosphere are facing right now? So that three-stage framework is basically looking back, assume we go extinct, what would have needed to happen before that? And the first step is, okay, we didn't stop a risk from emerging. It came either as a surprise or we didn't care enough to uh, prevent it from happening. The middle part is, and then it happens, we don't do anything useful about it. And the third part is, and it's big enough to actually wipe us out. Now, If we look around in the universe, there's certainly big energetic processes like supernovas and gamma ray bursts that would be really devastating if they happen nearby or directed at us. But they're also rather rare. Earlier I mentioned the asteroid that wiped out uh, the the dinosaurs. And again, yeah, we get hit every day by the small meteorites and asteroids. But the probability distribution of a real dinosaur killer is such that, yeah, we don't need to worry too much about it. Uh, we have cataloged the nearby asteroids and there is no nobody uh, out there that seems to be really uh, having our number. And similarly, on Earth, you get climatic changes. We're living in the middle of an ice age right now, and in an interglacial when it's temporarily warmer. That's going to end in a few tens of thousands of years. But our ancestors were surviving rather well during the Ice Age. It might be not very fun for us, especially us living on very northern latitudes, but that's manageable. It just is a big transition, just like we have a real problem with our own homemade climate change problem. Another big set of risks coming from nature is, of course, pandemics. We have seen how annoying and bad a pandemic can be. Uh, COVID uh, killed uh, more than 10 million people worldwide, and the pandemic is still not quite over. Yet, this was kind of a dress rehearsal, in my view, because there could be much worse. There are related viruses that are much more deadly. And unfortunately, and this is where we get over to the human-created risks, we humans can make deadly viruses. We can even uh, carefully design them to have particular properties uh, because of malicious reasons. So it seems like the natural existential risk, although it's there, it's a fairly small risk. Uh, while human created risks are much more serious. 
Some of them could be mistakes. There was a debate uh, some years ago whether the Large Hadron Collider and other particle physics experiments could trigger these unusual physical uh, phenomena uh, like strangelets or uh, microscopic black holes that could gobble up the Earth or even the even more exotic uh, false vacuum decay that would create this shockwave spreading across the universe where the vacuum itself and the laws of physics we're used to would be transformed at the speed of light. It's an interesting issue, and I'm not losing any sleep uh, about it, because there are good arguments why this is exceedingly unlikely. So it's not a much of a problem. But actually proving this turned out to be an intellectually tricky thing, because it deals with physics we don't fully understand. And finding arguments that actually work, even when there are many complications, is tricky. Much more serious issues are, of course, good old, old-fashioned nuclear war. Uh, again, a direct nuclear war is a terribly and, and, and a horrible thing in itself. It might, a full-scale nuclear war might directly kill uh, hundreds of millions of people. But the real problem is, of course, the nuclear winter, which we still don't know for certain how uh, bad a problem it, it could be. But some simulations seem to suggest that, yep, we might definitely have uh, literally billions of people starving to death because you get tens of years with very little sunlight and agriculture and it doesn't work in a colder world. <clears throat> but, but then we have the high-tech risks. And very interesting because in many ways, they don't exist yet. And we could, if we got our act together, stave them off. While nuclear war is something we need to solve by figuring out how to do the proper diplomacy and nuclear disarmament, and defending against future biotechnological risks or artificial intelligence becoming very powerful but be guided by the wrong values or other as yet unknown technologies is tricky because we don't know what the technologies are. We don't know what the safeguards should be. Yet, before they're made, we have a lot of power over what gets developed. So that is the trickiest category of the simple risks. And then you have the final, really annoying category, and that's the complex risks. Uh, many people listening to this probably wonder, but when will he start talking climate change? And for a long time, I, I totally ignore climate change because you actually need a lot of climate change to actually kill all people. It's kind of a ridiculous increase in temperature, and, and it was very unlikely. There was a little bit of tail risk in the climate scientist models, but it didn't look very serious, and they didn't take it very seriously because they knew our models are so uncertain up in the tail. But it's also a systemic risk. The real problem we have right now after COVID, for example, is that a lot of supply chains are messed up, partially because of COVID, partially because of an economic downturn, partially because of the, the war in Ukraine. Many different factors interfere, and that has an effect also on energy prices, which has an effect on food prices, which has a lot of effects on the civil unrest in a lot of countries, which feeds back into this system. And meanwhile, we have cyber attacks and a financial system that's held together by a lot of transactions that very few people understand and could go haywire for various complicated reasons. All these systems are annoyingly connected to each other. So when the energy price spikes, that makes food prices go up, which can cause civil unrest. And now imagine that climate change barges in. So you get some natural disasters, but also a lot of agricultural systems under pressure. That could create this complicated situation where I can't exactly see how any individual part of that could bring down civilization or kill all humans. But I can totally see how you get a large crash where a lot of unlikely things then happen together. 
So this kind of systemic risk is probably the nastiest category because everything and everyone is involved there. It's so much easier to deal with asteroids. You just need to send up a spacecraft and deflect it in a sufficient time. It's a very simple cause and effect situation. It's even easier to deal with future technologies because we might develop safeguarding technologies like AI safety. Systemic risks, we don't have a good idea about yet. We have very small ideas, but we need much more work on that. I think that's a big part of what this project is all about, is understanding that the current civilization is a house of cards that we exist within. And it is an unstable house of cards. And we saw it flex during COVID. Uh, Now, the interesting thing is, it's a house of cards, but many houses of cards, when they fall over, it's not like all of the cards uh, uh, end up flat on the table. Part of them crash. And we discovered interesting and surprising things. In uh, February 2020, I was arguing online. You can find it on Twitter that uh, if you close down the airline uh, transport system in the world, that's going to be a total disaster. It's going to crash everything and so on. Didn't actually turn out to be that bad. We can survive with that. It was annoying, especially for a frequent traveler like me. But it wasn't that problematic. On the other hand, a single ship stuck in the Suez Canal caused a ridiculous amount of knock-on problems. The interesting thing is we don't have a good theory about where the really vulnerable points in our civilization are. We have some good suspicions. If the international credit system uh, fails and you can't pay with your credit card, uh, many of us are in trouble. Uh, We can totally see that, yeah, if we can't get energy to heat buildings uh, in Scandinavia in winter, that's going to quickly go very bad, especially when it gets in cold enough that the water is going to start to freeze in the pipes in the walls. You need to actually remove the water before that happens. Otherwise, you're not going to have livable buildings next summer. Oh, dear. And the water system, by the way, is, of course, also powered by electricity. But these are the obvious things. And I bet that... If you actually have a systemic collapse and you sift through the wreckage, the actual cause is going to turn out to be something very odd, very minor, but then cascades. So what we need to do is have a way of dealing with this. And that gets to the second part. The first part of the risks is basically where are we coming from? Are the natural things? Sometimes they might be human caused because of accidents, like the uh, particle physics risk. Sometimes it might be um, that there are malicious actors. We could imagine a bioterrorist wanting to destroy the world or wanting to cause a lot of damage, and then it got a bit out of hand. But you could also have something like climate change, where we're all complicit to some degree, but uh, it's mostly a coordination issue. Nobody really wants to cause climate change, but we're rather bad at making the right political institutional solutions for it. But once something is ongoing, you need to do something about it. And COVID demonstrated that people have a lot of different ideas, and some of them are better than others. And if there is an actual risk happening, you can start trying to stop it. And some risks are just enormous big things, like if a supernova near Earth uh, happened, We couldn't really do much defense against it. We would just need to move straight to dealing with the consequences. A pandemic, we can try to stop early on before it becomes endemic. We can try to find vaccines and other ways of protecting ourselves. Um, In the case of uh, bad artificial intelligence, again, you might want to have a way of pulling the plug. Except that, of course, a sufficiently smart artificial intelligence is going to know that uh, pulling the plug is going to be bad for it, whatever its plans are, and are going to have taken steps against that. 
So you might want to construct all your AIs to be totally fine with having their pulse plugged beforehand. That is at least mathematically possible, uh, although I don't know whether we can get it implemented. So that middle thing about reacting is interesting because in many cases, it's very hard to predict when rare events happen. In fact, it's kind of in principle impossible almost because you have very little data. Many of them are unprecedented. But when you see something bad happening, when the fire alarm goes off, you can actually scramble and do a lot of things. So you can prepare beforehand and put uh, resources uh, in place. So if there is a new pandemic, natural or artificial, if uh, something is starting to crash the internet, okay, you do whatever is needed there to uh, activate the safeguards. And then, of course, we might want to make sure we can rebuild. We want to have backup copies of our own personal files. We might want to have cash at hand uh, so when the credit card system doesn't work, we can at least pay with cash. You might want to have refuges where some people uh, can hide with resources and libraries, etc. Now, many of these things are not going to solve all the problem. Many of them might not work against certain kinds of disasters, but it's useful to think about what they would entail. Uh, and we have a couple of conversations uh, coming up and have already done some with the Svalbard Seed Bank, for example, with a, an author and um, and a, a biologist named Lewis Dartnell, who has written a book called The, the Knowledge, I'm sure you know. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. Can we create sort of a holistic plan here where if everything goes wrong, everything sort of triggers in the right way? Um, to, to to save our, ourselves. <laughs> I think it's possible. I have a feeling that the holistic plan is going to fail. My, my father was about as pessimistic as I'm optimistic. And he was also a manager at a big company for big projects. And he had told me, always have a plan B. And plan B is going to fail. So you need to have a plan C and a plan D and a plan E and a plan F. By the point you get to plan F, of course, you, you, that's still going to fail. But at this point, you understand a lot about the domain. You can use the pieces that you have figured out when doing the other plans when you're improvising in the crisis to fix things. Uh, so, for example, I'm uh, involved with the nonprofit AllFed, the Alliance to Feed the Earth uh, in the case of dis- everybody in the case of disasters. Um, we are interested in those scenarios that crash the agricultural system, either because uh, the dust in the stratosphere or maybe electromagnetic pulses or geomagnetic storms wiping up out industrial capacity. So we have been looking, or rather the others, I'm just uh, generally cheering on as the, the impractical philosopher I am, into various practical ways, like could you turn uh, wood and the uh, dead biomass into something edible? either directly or more likely uh, as feedstock for fungi and insects uh, and then feed that to animals. Um, There are various interesting projects uh, going on, even commercially, about taking natural gas and turn that into nutrients for bacteria, which then can be used as fish feed or maybe used actually as human feed. Uh, Right now, we're very interested in kelp farming, which is pursued mostly by people interested in uh, uh, sequestering carbon into the ocean, but it might also be a good way of feeding people in these scenarios. This doesn't solve all the problem, but it solves a whole bunch of related problems, a kind of key pathway in how things could turn bad. And ideally, 
in some years, we have done our work, we have blueprints, we have research, we have demonstrated what works and uh, how you do it. And then ideally, there should be this information package sitting on a bookshelf in every cabinet office in every country in the world, and hopefully in a lot of li- uh, school libraries too, and hopefully gathering dust. But in the case of a black sky, kind of a break glass, and this is what you need to do to turn the local paper mill into a nutrient factory. We need more stuff like that. So all Fed is focused on the food part, but you could see similar things for we need to back up our information. The seed vault is backing up genetic information. And I think a good holistic plan would be trying to encourage that there's so many of these things as possible. I would love to, uh, to make sure that there was a backup copy printed out in a inert storage of Wikipedia on every square kilometer of Earth's surface. Because uh, if something really bad happens, it's anything that exists in a few copies is likely to disappear. It's the stuff that you span the world with that survives. And similarly, you want to have plans that also people know about or accept. Because during COVID in the US, for example, there did exist a National Security Council plan for a respiratory airway pandemics. But because of political reasons, because it was from the previous administration at the time, it was dropped. It would have saved a lot of lives, but because of stupid politics, it was ignored. And we should probably count on a lot of stupidity happening in any disaster. COVID was a horrible demonstration of that. But we can also use it as inputs that, okay, we need a plan that can handle this much stupidity. Yeah. That was one of my favorite parts of talking to Lewis Dartnell was, a big thing on his mind is what is the minimum amount of information that you can impart to someone to trigger civilization, you know, mm-hmm. that you can, that you, and you know, there, there's concepts of like, if what's the one sentence that you could say that would trigger the scientific method in a population that doesn't use science. And um, I, th- I think it is fascinating. Um, it's not as simple as, you know, it's on the spectrum of printing out all of Wikipedia, which is pretty difficult, you know, to to having a tiny book that caught, you know, there's 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 all there's all different points on the spectrum of how do we inspire science, how do we inspire survival and civilization in general, and uh, I think it's a really fascinating conversation. Um, and by yeah, the way, we're, I, we're it ahead. also shows that you might want that spectrum. You want a copy of Wikipedia, but. That's not going to be a good starting point if you try to figure out how to survive and rebuild civilization because digging through all of Wikipedia takes a lifetime. Uh, while uh, Lewis' book, The Knowledge, is really good and you can actually uh, kind of have that book around. Somewhere in between, there is another book uh, I have at home, uh, which is about how to build a metalworking uh, workshop out of scrap metal. And it begins with the observation that if you have a metal lathe, you can probably use that to make practically all the tools in the workshop. So the whole book is essentially about how to build that uh, thing. You still need scrap metal, but if civilization has crashed, we actually have a lot of scrap metal lying around. So that's not going to be a big problem. Uh, But you can then use some of these handbooks to bootstrap things. And some of it is pure information. What is a good design for a tool? Some of it is pure inspiration. Just knowing this can be done is tremendously powerful. I think it was Richard Feynman who suggested that there could be this one sentence thing that matter is made out of atoms that triggers the scientific method. I, I think 
he's wrong about that. I think that's a fairly useless thing. I think you should uh, do something about the germ theory of disease instead. I think that would be way more useful because you get immediately a lot of directly relevant health stuff. Mm. But one can quibble about that. And it's possible to have many of these short sentences. The issue is we don't know many of these things. We actually have a very bad understanding of how a civilization works. Where is stuff? What do we need to uh, repair to make things work? Um, and I think we need a lot more practical testing. It's all well and good to do a bit of theorizing about it. But I think even the most advanced countries and their intelligence services and military have a very unclear view of what actually exists. They might mm-hmm. know their own domain, but they don't even know how that interfaces with the wider world. Well, this is all great. This is great that I um, know that you're interested in this stuff. And by the way, we are going to be talking to Alfed um, in a couple of weeks, which I'm excited about. And uh, I, uh, I've i had this idea that I've been mulling over and talked to Lewis about it for a while about creating an art installation, basically a miniature bunker that is out of ground that everyone can see that's beautiful, that inside of it is things like the knowledge, things like, uh, you know, the book that you mentioned on how to create a, a metal working lathe. Um, filled with information on how to restart civilization. And that bunker only unlocks if it's disconnected from the electrical grid. So if the entire electrical grid goes down or there's some sort of trigger, it uh, it opens, essentially. Um, and uh, I think it's important to have, you know, small, the Svalbard Seed Bank is so gorgeous. It's in the middle of nowhere. No one walks past it on their way to work. And I think that we need to have these reminders that you never want this thing to be used. <laughs> you know, you never want yes. to need a book like The Knowledge. You never want to need a company like Allfed to uh, create a, a sludge that human beings eat out of uh, natural gases. You know, that's a that, that's a bad scenario. Um, but at so, the same time, uh, you want it to be inspiring. You want to know that it exists. Exactly. Uh, actually, I have walked past the place of the seed bank, but before it was built. So I know the side of a mountain. I uh, I saw it, but at that point, it was just a mountain. Um, And that's another interesting problem. We do tend to lose a lot of information in our civilization. A lot of what we forget doesn't matter very much. But of course, historians uh, are kind of uh, moaning about how much we don't know about the classical era because we lost more than 90% of all the books. Many interesting pieces of information are only coming to us through quotes in other works, etc. And uh, similarly, a lot of important stuff on how to do things is also hard to document. So it's one thing to have a book saying you do this and that. But if that practice is not well known, it might also be a problem. Mm. So I think we need to work a lot on our creativity to make something like seed banks for civilizations. There is also an interesting question, what we're trying to save. So the classic idea for a bunker is the idea that we need to save the humans. The humans uh, are the important part. And if they survive, then even if it takes a long time to rebuild civilization, the important part of the future has been saved. That works for some disasters, but it seems like there are some disasters that are probably going to wipe out bunkers. And in many disasters, you might actually expect there to be people on Tasmania who are going to be doing pretty well anyway. So then the bunker might actually have to contain the artwork. You actually want the bunker that is inspirational, contains useful stuff, and also contains the part of our civilization that we really want to make sure future civilizations know about. 
because um, one of the big problems is that some aspects of our civil service are highly contingent. Our language is kind of randomly evolving. Many parts of our art are linked to how our culture has evolved. And even if another civilization reaches our level and goes far beyond it, they are not going to reinvent Shakespeare. Shakespeare was kind of one person in a particular point in time. And that means that we might want to preserve what he did. Now, of course, given that there are many copies of Shakespeare's works, he's probably going to do rather fine. But there are many other exquisite things that we deeply care about that we want to put in as a kind of time capsule. Mm. Because there is something about the continuity of civilization. In some sense, we're still connected to ancient Sumerians. We can read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Our clocks are still using the Babylonian-based uh, 60 uh, system. And uh, a lot of our, the weirdness of our language and court come from ancient Greek city-states. Mm. We want to make sure that chain continues. Uh, the most prevalent in idea in my mind here is how do we preserve all of the scientific discoveries and papers and documentation that is is literally centuries of development and and human understanding of how the universe works um we're talking to a company called desi i don't know if you've ever heard of them and they are creating basically a an interlinked a blockchain neural network that uh, connects all scientific documents and scientific papers so that they're live uh, and that uh, they're not just like, you know, a, a static PDF, but they're a part of a node and all of their data is connected to the other data. You know, if they reference any papers, if that paper changes, all the other paper changes. It's a really interesting concept. And, uh, you know, as long as the as long as the, a, a solar flare doesn't take out everything, you know, maybe we can preserve on any computer would have access to all of those documents, you know? It's, yeah, it's but, but that is the problem too, because uh, once a few data centers are taken out, suddenly we get this gaping hole. It used to be that university libraries contain copies of all the journals, but these days nobody looks at the paper copies anymore. I, I think many of the journals have stopped doing it, which means that there is a bunch of data centers that probably very few people even know where they are that actually do contain most of the recent scientific knowledge, which I find tremendously disturbing. Now, if we could use a blockchain system to make that better, great. But again, the solar flare taking out a lot of systems might break that blockchain. So you want to add a lot of resiliency here. This is actually where stone and paper have some advantages over the, uh, an ever so beautiful and clever blockchain. Right. So let's do a little bit of a pivot here. Um, you've done extensive research uh, writing about long-term trajectories of human civilizations, but with a special focus around space exploration and settlement. And there's debates even within my kitchen, within my organization on whether space exploration and colonization should be prioritized when we can't even maintain uh, ecological equil equilibrium on our home planet. So how do you contextualize space exploration and colonization around the preservation of Earth's ecosystem? Or is that exploration an escape from a failed ecosystem? It's pretty implausible that you could use it as a effective escape from a failed ecosystem, uh, except for a very small subset of people and species. Uh, it's not going to be that good of a solution. And also, it's right now it's not an extremely cost-effective way of reducing existential risk. 
However, long term, I think it's absolutely necessary. Uh, I tend to think, think very long term. Uh, I was literally uh, plotting uh, some of uh, solar output of the next few billion years before starting this podcast. Uh, so in a few billion years, we definitely need to move away from here, no matter what else we do. Uh, but the importance of space is both it is inspirational. The pale blue dot uh, image by Carl Sagan, and even more, of course, the blue marble photo taken from the moon or showing Earth in its fragility, have been tremendously inspirational for preserving the environment, for actually realizing, yeah, we're all in it together in this thin layer on top uh, of Earth, surrounded by eternal blackness. We need to preserve this. And also, the tools you need to go to space are also exactly the tools we need to actually make Earth better and more stable. After all, imagine that you're successfully settling uh, other bodies in the solar system. What do you need? Well, besides the direct life support system, you are going to need some form of mining, automated mining, that can take fairly low-grade material like asteroids. It's Most of asteroid material is not anything we would consider a good ore down here on Earth, and convert that into raw materials. And it needs to be fairly highly automated. And then we want to automated manufacturing to turn that into the parts we need for our habitat. We need an internal ecosystem that uh, works well enough, can produce at least the food we need to survive, we probably need a perfect recycling system because material and space is expensive. You will want to recycle things really well. You also are probably going to mostly, at least in the inner solar system, want to use renewable energy in the form of solar power. You want to be really good at it. And uh, that set of uh, systems, that sounds like it's very good news for Earth. We we should want to have automated mining. We should want to have really good automated recycling, automated manufacturing, good energy sources. Even that enclosed ecosystem is a proof of concept that you can do sustainable agriculture. Uh, so if you imagine that you can have this uh, space-based ecosystem that produces food for people living in it, then you could also put it on a parking lot on Earth and have it physically isolated from the rest of the biosphere. That would be sustainable farming in a sense, that uh, it would uh, demonstrate that, yep, you don't have to deplete anything to do farming indefinitely. Except, of course, it's a pretty ridiculous way of actually doing it. We, there are better ways to doing it together with the rest of the biosphere. Mm-hmm. But the, fu- the reason I'm bringing this up is that quite often space seems a bit frivolous. And I think it almost is. It's a bit like astronomy. In many ways, astronomy has been a very useless science, except it has driven advances in mathematics uh, that are profound. It has driven advances in physics that have been profound. It turned out to be useful for navigation, and that fed back uh, a lot of uh, things. And in general, astronomy has actually spun off an enormous amount of valuable things. What is driving us to do astronomy is, of course, we want to know our place in the universe and there's kind of fantastic stuff in the sky. Similarly, settling Mars, in some sense, it's about as ridiculous as uh, being in awe of the universe. But that's actually a nice drive too, wanting to spread, wanting uh, to explore. These are noble things. But the really valuable part is that it forces us to solve some rather tough problems. So critics of space settlement usually say, yeah, but even Mars, which is probably the nicest uh, spot beside Earth in the solar system, uh, is kind of 
enormously much more hostile than the center of Antarctica of the Taklamakan Desert. Come back when you can settle Taklamakan. But the thing is, of course, before you build a Mars base, you're probably going to test it out in a desert or in Antarctica. And then you have kind of settled it. It's just that it's probably not a very valuable real estate. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is we do as a species a lot of stuff for reasons that in some sense don't make sense. Religion uh, or in front of the universe uh, uh, ambition. But that often leads to actually quite useful things. The astronomical investigations gave us navigation, gave us trigonometry, gave us a lot of tools for understanding the world. A lot of the general inquiry into physics gave us the modern technologies. So my argument is that long term, we need to get into space. Short term, yeah, it's something that is ongoing, but it's not exactly uh, reducing the budgets for reducing existential risks or fixing the ecosystem. Uh, We can do multiple things at the same time. I think humanity can walk and chew gum at the same time. um, The inspirational component, especially, I find would be potentially very beneficial to humanity. I, I can think of no, no, I can think of no greater uh, replacement for the Olympics that, you know, saved the Greek, the Greek continent from civil war. Uh, I can think of no greater replacement than a space race uh, in which every, you know, we're all cheering for our own team, like a sport. And we're like, let's, who could get to Mars first? That, I mean, the, the, the sheer amount of, of, Civilizational development and technology, as you mentioned, that would that needs to go into getting people on Mars is is astounding, and and it's a, I think it's a really healthy mentality for us to to cultivate. But but the problem is a healthy mentality is usually not enough to make something stick. So the old space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, in some sense, it did produce a lot of healthy and useful outcomes, including some very nice interactions between superpowers in space, agreeing to find ways of docking spacecraft and working together. But in the end, after Apollo 17, it was kind of over and everybody went home and did other stuff. It didn't have a staying power. You probably want to have some business people involved figuring out how to make this a viable business. You want that part to to make it stick. This is why some parts of the Earth are settled and other parts are not. There are economic deserts on Earth, areas, large areas where there is no economic activity whatsoever. Typically, they are found near the poles because uh, basically when the average temperature over the year is below zero Celsius, no human really wants to go there voluntarily. There must be a super good reason to be there. And right now, well, there is a bit of science, but you don't even get very much mining at that point. But gradually, when you find a reason to go somewhere, then we can put up with a lot of hardships uh, if it's valuable enough. And then, of course, when there are people around, you want to have a canteen selling food. When I was, was up on Svalbard some years ago, I was up in New Orleans, a research station. This is kind of 80 degrees north in latitude. We're 10 degrees away from the North Pole. And the local restaurant, 35 inhabitants, but they had a local restaurant, had kind of a Chinese-Asian uh, uh, mix menu, and they had food dogs outside the door. I don't know how much it cost to import food dogs uh, and sculptures uh, outside the restaurant, but we had them <laughs> right next to the little sign saying, beyond this point, you need to carry a rifle to scare off polar bears. The thing is, once you create a community of people, 
you get other things. And over the years, of course, that grows. People grow up there. They add culture. They get local traditions. Somebody starts not just the local restaurant, but the local library. And you actually settle in. Space settlement is not just about to boldly go where no man has gone before, or even making a machine that allows you to do it. But it's also actually figuring out what are we doing here? And that is also an interesting challenge because a lot of space is rather worthless. There is very little material around. Yes, you have a plentiful of energy, but um, much of the material is not even easy to process. Uh, Earth is way more differentiated. If you want iron ore, there are a lot of good uh, ore bodies on Earth. Yeah, there are some iron asteroids, but uh, if you want to alloy that with another metal, you might realize, oh, I need to take enormous amount of regularly from another kind of asteroid and convert that. And now I need to transport it over large distances. But it actually might be that it's the distance that itself that is valuable in space. Mm. If I want to do a dangerous experiment on Earth, I might want to put it far away from people, but it's still in the biosphere. If I could do it far away in space, it would actually be much better. Everybody would be much uh, less nervous. And of course, to reduce risk, you want to spread out quite widely. It's less likely that something hits everybody. So in the long run, I think spreading out is probably the most effective way of keeping our civilization safe, not just for risks that are like big explosions or pandemics, but also maybe cultural risks. Having a diversity of culture and approaches to life is actually very important. And right now we might be approaching an era where we're all getting very globalized because we're all sharing the same internet. Although, of course, we both have authoritarian states states trying to cut off their part of the internet and language and culture acting as barriers. But it might be that one of the benefits of being far apart in space is just the diversity that is forced on us because of a light speed limit. Mm. So I have to bring up, you've you've, you've done a lot of work around the Fermi paradox and dissolving it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's... It's something that comes up in my mind a lot. Uh, you know, if we were to see evidence, you know, through the James Webb telescope on some exoplanet, something reflecting out there that points to a, an advanced civilization, how how much it would change our perspective of that distance mm-hmm. and our, our perspective of what space itself is and how valuable what is generally mm-hmm. considered right now to be empty. Um why? Um, what, what, what's your focus on the, the Fermi paradox? And, and um, so I, I quite often get this question: Aren't you from the future of humanity institute? Why do you care about aliens? And the answer is, of course, if we could see alien civilizations of the sky, uh, that would actually give us pretty good information about things like us, intelligent creatures. What are they? Fa- what are? What is the fate here? What can happen? Uh, so, if we looked at the sky and saw that there are various remote super civilizations, even though they might be so far away that we could never interact, we would know that it's possible to grow up into a super civilization. That is kind of good news. We might also see ruins of former super civilizations, and that would tell us that, uh oh, even at that level, there might be very dangerous things around. We might see that, oh, there is a lot of dead civilizations and very few alive civilizations. The universe is way scarier than we thought. That might even tell us something about our own chances or our own strategy. We might see that certain patterns work well and certain patterns don't work well. Now, if you on the other hand notice a totally empty universe, that is creepy in a different way. 
maybe there is something wiping out the intelligence rather early on. In that case, we're in deep trouble. Or maybe we're fairly alone, which might also mean that uh, we have a tremendous responsibility. We, we might be responsible for life in the universe. And um, that is something that should change our strategy. Now, to most people, of course, hearing that there are aliens out there would be an interesting uh, new story. Religious people would no doubt have a discussion about whether aliens change their religious views or not, and uh, different groups would come to different conclusions. But it would be good news for us because it shows that, yeah, at least so, uh, some, somebody else out there has survived rather well. Now, the real problem is, of course, how do we find them? And, uh, because uh, the universe is very large. And it's very old, but we also have relatively limited instruments so far. So maybe we're out there and we're not seeing them, or maybe we're not out there, in which case we have a big paradox, uh, which is, of course, something that has interested me quite a lot, trying to see, can I calculate the probability here? Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit, I, I could not get on the this call with you without talking about transhumanism, obviously. Um, it's a topic for which you are famous. Um just just briefly for, for listeners who aren't familiar, what is transhumanism? So transhumanism is the idea that the human condition can be improved using technological means. It's not just that we can improve the human condition by being rational, nice people, do education, set up the right kind of institutions like classical humanism suggests, but also shouldn't we do something about our aging? Shouldn't we try to be smarter, figure out ways to make our emotions nicer, and maybe make our bodies more uh, functional so we can you know, have a, we do what we want rather than what evolution randomly put together? So there is a lot of trans, different transhumanist views, of course, about what, what direction we might want to go in. So I joined this movement in the 1990s when it was mailing lists on the internet. And then I did some of the early web pages for transhumanism. And then, of course, it's grown and it's diversified. There's a lot of people doing very different things. Now, the interesting part here is, of course, how real is it? How much can we actually improve uh, our human condition? And there are some things we totally do. We have our smartphones that make us uh, connected. And uh, as long as GPS doesn't stop, we are not lost. And in many ways, they're acting as an extended mind for us. Uh, we certainly have some drugs that do improve our cognition. And, uh, I just got a cup of coffee here, and, uh, which is going to keep me alert and, uh, for another hour. Um, and uh, there are other drugs that have other interesting effects on our frontal lobes. We can do a bit of genetic engineering, although it's not common uh, yet. But people have used gene therapy to try to slow down their aging. So we're getting there. It's nothing super radical yet. It's not, not really like the science fiction scenarios. But of course, it also raises a lot of interesting debates about, okay, where do we want to go? What do we actually think is essentially human and important? And what are the bad aspects of human enhancement? So this has led to a lot of wild debate in bioethics, which is quite fun. So let's let's uh, bring that conversation around to human existential risk. What is trans? How does transhumanism relate to 
are existential risk and what are the best case and worst case scenarios from your perspective that we would see in there? So the transhumanist mindset the, the quite often envisions radically different futures, uh, not just that we have a future with flying cars, but actually we have turned ourselves immortal and we're super smart and we've got backup copies in the cloud, etc., etc. That mindset that the future could be radically different from the present also implies, if you think carefully, that it could be radically worse. If we could actually enhance ourselves and do all this, maybe we could flub it and actually make disenhancements. We could create tools that devastate the world, etc. So many of the people involved with the start of existential risk studies in the early notice came from a transhumanist background. And generally, I think if you're a transhumanist, you think that the future looks like it could be tremendously great. Not just good, uh, like a continuation of the present, which is still rather good, but much better, much longer, much bigger, much grander. And that means that if we flub it now, when we haven't even started, we lose out on something tremendously important. So that leads to this view that we better be careful which is a bit paradoxical because you could imagine, of course, the generic transhumanists who can hardly wait until they get their life extension treatments and cyborg implants. But if they're careful, they might say, "Mm, I want to make sure that biotechnology is safe enough so it doesn't unleash any any biological risks on the ecosphere. I want to make sure those implants are safe so we don't crash our civilization. Actually, we might want to put some things off because we want it to be really long-term oriented. Mm. So let's let's look at that long-term orientation. Obviously, the potentially the the cream of the crop of transhumanism is a life extension to the point of immortality, which is something that I've I've heard you speak about. Um, what? Why are you focused on extending the human lifespan? You know, from a for, let's say from a moral perspective or from a, a human existential perspective. So, so again, I get back to that thing. Life is worth living. To most of us, life has a positive value and we don't want to stop it just yet. There are some people who validly say, okay, now this is too painful and too horrible. I want to opt out. And there's some people who said, okay, I kind of completed what I wanted to do. And that's fine. But most people who die, they don't die because they want to. They die because they have to, because of some random biological fact or an accident. And I think that is an infringement on human dignity. Just like being forced by circumstances not to do your life projects is a sad thing. Aging is harming us. And it's not just in the sense of eventual dying. There is also a very long period of time where we lose energy. Our immune systems get worse. We get sick more often. So we might have amassed quite a lot of wisdom and experience and uh, even an idea what we want to do with our lives, but now we're getting worse and worse at actually doing it. I think that is a great tragedy, and getting rid of that in the process breaking us down is a very powerful moral argument. But whenever I'm talking about life extension, a lot of people show up with all sorts of arguments for why it might actually be good for us to age and die. And I'm usually responding in a slightly in a, in a aggressive way, pointing out 100,000 people are dying every day because of age-related uh, illnesses in the world. Do you think that argument is good enough to justify 100,000 dead people per day? For example, it might be rather boring to have a long life, but 
would that be an argument that would allow 100,000 people to die? That's a small town every day. And most people would hopefully realize that's kind of crazy. You need a very strong argument to say that it's all right to to let them die. Because if it was about some other disease like malaria or cancer, uh, saying, oh, it would be boring if uh, uh, people didn't get cancer. So that's why we shouldn't be treating them. That's crazy. That's a non-starter. What's actually going on is, of course, many of us latch on to some way of handling our mortality. And that becomes an important part of our existential view on how the world works and our place. In. And then these annoying transhumanists show up and kind of kick at the foundation saying, maybe you don't always have to age. That is potentially a rather challenging thing. And I do think that there is an important um, issue that uh, we need to deal with. And that is, of course, how do you implement this well? Uh, because not all forms of life extension are good. You want a healthy lifespan. Just being in a respirator for a century is no good. Uh, but beyond that, also, we want to figure out how do you set up societies that can handle that? But again, we have figured out how to have a society that can handle many elderly people. We doubled the average lifespan in many Western countries uh, over the past century. And that has changed things, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But we can do that. If we need to change the retirement system and maybe have term limits for professors uh, to a century, okay, fine, we, we can implement that. Right. I, I, I have many, many uh, things that I would want to dive into deeply about what you just said. And uh, that's that's a point of debate. That's a debate I'd want to see, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and it, but the one thing that does come to my mind is when you know that you have a long time, you start to think about how you can invest in long-term ideas and long-term projects. And uh, the the opposite being only investing in short-term ideas, short-term gain, short-term process, that's that's what's led us to many of the issues that we experience now. So it's definitely yeah. a very thought-provoking idea. And of course, if you think that you're going to be around for a long time, the environment suddenly becomes a much more relevant thing. If I want to have a nice little villa for my retirement, today I might actually seriously think about sea level rise and climate change. Where should that place be? In fact, avoiding that climate change might be a very useful thing. If you live for a long time, you might see social values and other things change, which we're to some extent seeing right now when we have a kind of rapid change in social norms in many domains, which leads to calling out a lot of people who were doing things decades earlier. Now, we both need a bit of intergenerational understanding here to make this work, but it also raises this interesting issue of, okay, can I justify what I'm doing right now both to future generations and to myself in a century's time. Uh, Maybe both the future generations and my future self might be appalled at some of the things I'm doing right now. So having that long-term perspective can be quite helpful. Mm. Well, let's... uh, 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 Anders, I could talk to you for hours. I'm sure you get this (laughs) this feedback a lot. This has been so wonderful. Um, You know, your ideas are controversial and thought-provoking and a necessary component of this conversation that we're trying to have. Um, Somebody invite- needs to kind of start it by throwing uh, in a few little party bombs uh, uh, to get people to try start digging into th- these uh, things. And I found that many of these extreme ideas from transhumanism and other fields are also useful like prisms for 
studying our own ideas. For example, I have an unpublished paper about uh, theories of punishment where I look at human enhancement and punishment. And even if you don't care about human enhancement, it becomes a very good tool for understanding how the different theories of punishment come apart. Uh, There are many interesting issues that show up when you start thinking about space as a potential habitat, about, okay, what parts of a civilization do we care about? What is needed for making a civilization one civilization rather than a bundle of separate ones? Existential risk puts some of our big uh, ideas to a great challenge. For example, what's the role of justice when dealing with these big disasters? A mere global catastrophe quite often has a strong justice effect because it's going to harm the worst of much more than the better of. So besides the actual harm, there is also an injustice inherent in that disaster. Mm. Yet it seems like something threatening the survival of everybody. Maybe there is no normal justice there because now justice can't exist without people. So if we don't survive, it doesn't matter, which seems to justify doing anything. Yet there is also another kind of justice, the intergenerational justice, which again makes us think rather carefully about what should we be doing. And maybe we've been wrong about how we think about justice, because we normally think about it as what we do to each other or in societies, but there are other civilization level things. That's it's. Wow, I hope you publish that paper. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Me too. <laughs> um, I promised to give a talk uh, at my college about it uh, next year. So I have some deadline. Before that, I better have figured out what, uh, what works. Okay, that's and that's. I look forward to it. Um, last question for you, Anders. Uh, who who else do you think I should be speaking to? Who would you like to sit down with at a table and and kind of debate some of these ideas that you haven't gotten the opportunity to yet? <laughs> Oh, there are many people uh, that I like debating it with. One of my favorites is James Huge. So we kind of uh, are both from the transhumanist background, but he's coming very much from the social democratic, uh, liberal left uh, tradition. Uh, And I'm kind of more uh, of a gung-ho libertarian, although a libertarian from Sweden, so I'm probably a left-winger by American standards anyway. Uh, But we get along very well, and he's been thinking about interesting issues about human enhancement and uh, Buddhism and thinking about, well, what about the mind? How can we be better and nicer people? Not just uh, more long-lived and stronger and faster people, but there is something important about how can you get kind of a better compassion? And I think there is an interesting debate here about what institutions are, are needed to do this and what tools can we use to improve our minds and then through that improve our society so it actually can become this long-term society that is actually worth having around for millions and billions of years. Mm. All right, maybe I can get James on here. Um, and I know many people at the uh, at the uh, Future of Humanity Institute that I'm hoping to speak with, including uh, Nick Bostrom. And we'll, we'll see. Maybe we can get a little uh, virtual conference going. That would but, be great um, fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Um, Anders, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, your exciting ideas. Uh, and I, I look forward to speaking to you soon. Well, thank you for having me. This is great fun. Awesome.